Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Scripture tonight is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5, page 1014 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judge, judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to the light, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one praise will come from God. Good evening. Good to see you all tonight. I hope everybody has had a great day. I hope all the mothers especially have had a great day, even nobody else has. But hopefully we all have. And it's good to see you back here this evening. Our text for tonight is the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We just have a couple of more weeks in this Sunday evening series before our summer series starts. Beginning the Sunday nights in June at 6 p.m., we have a series of guest speakers um, that will be with us in June and July and August. And then, Lord willing, in September, to everyone's great relief, uh, I will resume this series. Uh, but for tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, let's go ahead and begin and dig in the text. The Apostle Paul says, this is how one should regard us. And I want to make sure that we understand who the us is. And this is maybe one of the easiest mistakes that Bible students make. And that is while reading through a text, when they see us or you, people just automatically assume, oh, us, that, that's us. You know, that's me, and that's, that's them too, but that's me. And, well, that's not always the case. Sometimes that is the case, but we need to make sure that we're following the context of whichever book of the Bible we're studying to see who us is. In this case, us is the Apostle Paul and his fellow apostles, and perhaps by extension, others that had received the supernatural abilities like the gift of prophecy that enabled them to communicate the Word of God miraculously as the Bible was being written. And the first three chapters of the book, the Apostle Paul has been talking about underlying all the things that he said have been concerns about the leadership of the church at Corinth and as you will see uh, as we continue through this letter and look at 2 Corinthians as well, maybe next year, Lord willing, you're going to see that concerns about apostolic authority was something that Paul was dealing with in the church at Corinth. And so Paul is going to begin to apply, to bring the, 
first three and now into the fourth chapters of this book to, to bring the first real lesson that he's trying to get across to its major point. And so he does it this way. This is how one should regard us, that is, Paul the apostle, the other apostles, and the apostolic servants in the first century, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, those two phrases are very, very important. First of all, let's talk about what a steward is. A steward is a servant. In the ancient world, a steward was a servant that was placed in charge of his master's or employer's possessions. There were stewards who were enslaved individuals who had masters. Uh, you can think of the Bible story of Joseph. Joseph, when he was put over uh, Potiphar's house, was made the steward over Potiphar's household. And when you read uh, the story in the book of Genesis about Joseph, uh, when Joseph is, uh, well, when Potiphar's wife is trying to tempt Joseph to sin with her, one of the things that Joseph said is that my master has set me over all of his house. He doesn't even think about a single thing except for the food that he's putting in his mouth. And this gives you the, uh, well, just a real good description of what it was that a steward was called to do. A steward was a person of great respect, a person of great trust, a person who was given a lot of responsibility. And, and yes, we, we think today in America about slavery, we remember slavery in, the, in, in American history, a little bit different than the slavery that existed in the ancient world. In the ancient world, slavery was not something that was based upon race. There, there were slaves of every color and every variety and every ethnic group. And uh, slavery was a real common part of society. And it was not unusual for someone who was enslaved uh, to earn trust and respect and even to be able to live a, a, a very high standard of living as any steward would do. He would dress well. He would look presentable. He would be doing business with his master's uh, creditors, his master's customers, people that did uh, business with his master, and he was expected to be a respectable individual. Of course, there were also stewards that were free and that did their work as employees. Uh, and so they would be set in charge of a household. And that means what we would think of as a, not just as, you know, my house, it happens to be a house on a cul-de-sac in a neighborhood, but a household with a farm uh, with uh, multiple members of the family as well as servants and staff. And so the household in the ancient Roman world was like the center of civilization. It would have been a group of extended family members and non-family members that had been attached to that household. And so to be a steward was a position of considerable importance and uh, considerable responsibility. And, and so uh, what the Apostle Paul is saying, this is how Paul says, I want you all to think about me. I want you all to think about Peter and, and, and James and John and Matthew and others and probably even extending to folks like Apollos and Timothy that obviously had spiritual gifts that enabled them to minister in a supernatural way. He said, this is how I want you to think about us as kings and similar to the emperor and people that you should honor and regard as really on a higher plane than you. It's not what he said. He said, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So first of all, he said, we're the slave kind of stewards. And he said, we're stewards. That's all we are. It's Jesus' stuff. It's Jesus' truth. We have just been given a responsibility to see to it that it is used in the way that Jesus wants. 
Now, we start with the us. We start with Paul and his associates that are the immediate meaning of that word us in this context. But the Apostle Paul is using himself as an example. When we get to chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see that everything Paul is writing about himself, within reason, he's expecting the folks at Corinth to, to take as an example of how they ought to live. And so if Paul says, we, the apostles who have been, who have been put in charge of the, the, the gospel, the mysteries of God, we'll talk about in a second, if we're servants of Jesus and we're just stewards, where people are handling stuff that doesn't belong to us, it belongs to our master, we're trying to be responsible with that, well, then that applies to us in the secondary sense. And so all that a Christian is, is a steward of Jesus Christ, a servant that Jesus has entrusted with some amount of his property, with some amount of his goods, with some amount, some amount of the talent that belongs to him, with some of the opportunities that are his to give because he rules all of time. And so every Christian is a steward, and that means that we have a stewardship, that is, we have a responsibility to be faithful to Jesus with the time, the talent, and the money that God has given us. And there's the first lesson of the evening from this text. But Paul says, stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, what I want you to understand is that when we get into the New Testament and we begin to read about the concept of the mystery, it's always in the context of things that were formerly not known. That God just through the prophets let them hint at, let them give types and shadows, just little allusions to, references to, but never the full picture, never the full explanation. But when the New Testament comes along, it's as if God through the Holy Spirit is drawing back the curtains and enabling people to look in and see the finished beauty of the plan that He conceived of before the foundation of the world and had been working toward ever since through Jesus, he said, let there be light. Man, that's a big deal. In order for us to get, I think, hopefully a bigger picture of what Paul's talking about, we need to spend just a minute in the book of Ephesians, also written by the Apostle Paul. Let's first of all look at chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. Paul writes about Jesus. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will. You see that? Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Paul says this is what used to be cloaked in mystery, but now through the grace of God has been made known. In the dispensation of uh, the fullness of the times, here in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, that's a phrase right there, isn't it? That's a mouthful. In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, you know, we don't usually use that kind of language, and so probably most of you grasp that, but in case some of our younger ones don't, I always like to illustrate the word dispensation by drawing your attention to a Pez dispenser, right? We know what a Pez dispenser is, the little candy head things, you, you, you rock the head back and the wonderful little piece of Pez candy comes out. One of my favorite things as a kid, I still enjoy seeing them in the grocery store aisle when I do, but I never get them anymore. Maybe I should, I don't know, be a kid someday and get me another Pez dispenser, but anyway. The Pez dispenser 
dispenses the candy one little click of the head at a time, right? And so in the dispensation, it means the allotment of, the, the letting go of a dose of, the further revelation of. And so in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, when God through his will had allowed uh, the, the, his work to continue in this world and, and to build toward the ultimate aim of Jesus and everything what Jesus do, what would do, when the fullness of the times came that Jesus was born, Jesus accomplished all of God's will. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God. That is when the mystery of God was complete. And the purpose of everything that God did through Jesus is absolutely cosmic. It is universal. The purpose of God's plan from before the foundation of the world was to make everything one. No division. No disunity, no hostility, no hatred, no rebellion, nothing out of place, nothing wrong, nothing sinful. Everything, God, the angels, the invisible heavenly places, the visible heavens and earth, all bound together in one happy union in Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. That's God's plan. And he has chosen to allow us to participate in bringing that plan into reality by giving each one of us a stewardship. Ability, opportunity equals responsibility to do what God would have us to do. Turn over just to a couple of chapters to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. Now, what this means is, is that Paul did not know what God was doing, at least not at all in its entirety, but by revelation, meaning by a supernatural act, by a miracle, God made Paul aware of these truths and gave him the ability to communicate these truths as well. And then he says in verse 4, By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Note that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Before Jesus' ministry was complete and the church was established, and even up to about a decade after the church was established, there was one really obvious division in the whole of the human family. And it was not the division between sinner and saint, at least what was apparent to people in the world, especially to God's people. The, 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 the most notable division that existed in God's creation was the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and even as the church was established in its early days, it was almost entirely made up of Jews. And those who were not ethnically Jews were those who were uh, God-fearers before Christ had accomplished the gospel, meaning they leaned in the Jewish direction. Or proselytes, folks born as Gentiles who had 
gone through the process of converting to Jews. It wasn't until the household of Cornelius, which is arguably a decade into the Christian era, before the Holy Spirit finally got sick of the Jews not getting it. And it's no insult to the Jews. I'm just saying the Jewish Christians didn't get it, okay? You ever not got something before and kind of had to get smacked in the face with it before it would come home to you? That's Acts chapter 10. It's the kind smack in the face from God to say, wake up and see what all the prophets have been saying for thousands of years. And so the household of Cornelius are the first Gentile converts that became Christians without being expected to become Jews first. And so the first step in God uniting all things in heaven and on earth in him was to unite the human race. That's where this starts, brothers and sisters. And today in the year of our Lord, 2023, we are still continuing to carry on this stewardship of the mission of Jesus, which our primary purpose is to continue to get everybody, Jews and Gentiles, spiritually speaking, because now the church is spiritual Israel, and all the folks that are outside the church in the world are spiritually the Gentiles. And so our primary work as the church of Christ is to communicate the gospel, the call of God to unity uh, to those sons and daughters that are in disobedience and error out in the world. And, and, and through the gospel to bring them into the fold so that they can be a part of this family of God that we're a part of and they can begin to contribute their part as stewards of uh, time, talent, and money that belongs to Jesus so that they can help us to help their neighbors and family and, and friends and folks in the world to understand the truth about Jesus and to be unified in God's purposes as well. And so when Paul says, this is how one should regard us, the apostolic men, by extension, this is how the world should see all Christians as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God, this is what that means. This is exactly what that means. So stewards of the mystery of God primarily equals apostles. But I want you to remember chapter 2. I want you to remember chapter 2. Reluctant to tell a little bit of a story, but was troubled uh, just recently by a brother in Christ, not a member of this congregation, but just in, a congreg just in a conversation in which this brother revealed to me that he had changed his mind about the inspiration of the Scriptures. Not that he didn't believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God, but he decided that what God had done was give the apostles and prophets the ideas, that is just give them the broad truths and then just let them loose to communicate those truths however they want to. And as a result, he has come to believe that the Bible may contain many errors that just were the errors of these Bible writers as they tried to communicate the truth that God gave them, but because they were mere mortal human beings, they didn't do a very good job of it. I'm still, of course, going to pursue that conversation further. But I put there on the screen, remember chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians that we've studied just a few weeks ago. Because in that chapter, the Apostle Paul very clearly in no uncertain terms communicated how it was that he communicated the truth that had been revealed to him. He said spiritual truths, spiritual words. Not just truths taught by the Spirit, but words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual truths with spiritual words. And we, we get that, the, the doctrine of the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, which means the verbal inspiration of Scripture, that every single word in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, as originally penned by the apostles in the Hebrew and Greek, every single word was overseen by God and is His word, not man's word. Let me ask you a question. Just a question about the wisdom of God. What good sense does it make 
to give the most important truth that there has ever been, that has ever been shared with anybody, into weak vessels prone to error and to not guide them in the process of communicating that truth. Do you realize how ridiculous that thought is? And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying, what's the point? You give truth without error and then say, go, communicate that through error. Does that, just thinking about that, does that make sense that that's what God would do? You see, what's the point of that? Because if I can't trust that the Bible is God's word and without error, well, what, what passages are right and what ones are wrong? I tell you, brothers and sisters, when you start chipping away at the Bible doctrine of its own inspiration, it is the pathway to apostasy. You will lose your soul at the end of that road. I don't like to say that, and in this context, you're going to see why I don't like to say that, but there's every biblical reason to say that. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds to the mouth, from the mouth of God. So pray tell, how do I know which words proceeded from the mouth of God and which ones came from the errors of mankind? I thank God that in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he, the Holy Spirit, led the Apostle Paul to communicate how the process of inspiration actually worked. Now, he didn't tell us what it was like to hear the voice of God. That's not what I mean. But I mean, he tells us plainly, he did not just give us the thoughts he gave us the thoughts, and he taught us the words to communicate them with. Every word of the Bible is God's word. And yes, he communicated all of those words through mankind. And the Apostle Paul was a man who had sins in his life. He wasn't perfect. But when he sat down, pen to scroll, to write these letters, the Holy Spirit was overseeing the process. And when the end result was completed, it was and remains to this day the perfect and inerrant Word of God. And that is a fundamental of the faith. And if you start to deny that doctrine, I'm going to do everything in my power to convince you to get back on track. But if you persist in that, it will break our fellowship. It will break our fellowship. And it's not what I want. It's not what any Christian wants. But it is what must be. It is what must be. We must continue to hold on to the foundation. Again, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Let me just read for a minute or so here. Listen. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. What that means is that the majority of the brethren in the ancient church at Ephesus were not of Jewish stock. They were of Gentile ancestry, various races and nationalities of Gentiles, all right? And so they were called the uncircumcision by the Jews, verse 12. That at that time, before they were Christians, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. In other words, Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. The perfect law of God, it remains. But it divides humanity right down the middle, Jews and Gentiles. And so Jesus fulfilled it in himself 
that in him God may, might make one new mankind, no longer divided by race or nationality or ancestry or history, but united in a common belief in Jesus. Continuing then in verse 16, and they might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. In other words, those who were close, the Jews, and those who were far off, the Gentiles. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God, in the spirit brothers and sisters that is the revealed mystery of god and it is the foundation of our faith and so paul says this then in verse 2 moreover it is required of stewards that they be found faithful in other words trustworthy in other words honest about the responsibility that they've been given by their master or by their employer verse 3 paul says but with me it is a very small thing that i should be judged by you <laughs> I love Paul. I, I love the way the Spirit writes through Paul. Paul is like, who do you think you guys are in church in Corinth? Think you're judging me? I don't care if you judge me. That's, that's in essence what we might say today that Paul said. He said, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. See how clearly Paul has recognized the lines between what's on God's side and what's in the world? You see how clearly Paul understood that he was a stranger, an alien, a sojourner, a pilgrim in this world? That line was very clear, right in the middle of Paul's mind. And it needs to be clear in our minds as well. In fact, I do not even judge myself, Paul says. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Now, I want us to stop for a second, and, and we don't need to be getting scared to death about this passage to think that we live all of our lives and we never know if we're headed for heaven or hell. That's not what Paul is saying here. I mean, if you read the last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy, remember what Paul said? He said, I have finished the course. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. Not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. Those are Paul's words. Not that Paul is afraid that he's lost. That's not what he's doing. What he is embodying the Christian mindset here. He's embodying the mindset that stewards of Jesus Christ are to have as we live the life. You see, it is essential that we remain faithful. And at no time during our lives have we actually arrived at salvation. We live in salvation and we are saved. And the salvation that we have is what empowers the good works that we do. But if we decide to turn from the way, as long as we still draw breath in this life, then we can rebel against Jesus if we choose to do. And, and so what Paul is saying is, in essence, don't do that. Understand that, the, that the, the Lord is your judge. And he's tapping again into the concept of what it means to be a servant. We'll continue that in just a moment. He says, continuing the thought, it is the Lord who judges me. And then these words. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart 
Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, I'm not going to ask you tonight to raise your hands if you understand how this passage fits with the context that we have already looked at in 1 Corinthians so far, but I'll just say that if you will tap in to what we've talked about already in your knowledge of 1 Corinthians, you will realize that what was happening that Paul had been talking about is that they were all divided, they were all judging each other, they were all ranking each other, they were deciding who was the top dog and who was the second tier and who was on third string and who were all the folks that were good for nothing but water boys. <laughs> That's in essence what the folks in Corinth were doing and this is what Paul is trying to get them to stop doing. He's not saying you can never know if you're going to heaven. 1 John 5, 13, John the Apostle says, These things have been written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I know I have eternal life. Not because I've earned it, but because Christ has earned it for me and I will be faithful unto death, so help me God. And if you can amen that, then you can know that you're saved too. But i got to stop deciding for you whether you're saved or not. And I, I, you've got to stop deciding for me whether I'm saved or not. And again, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that we don't judge at all. We judge in the sense of, of practicing discernment that we might learn what the will of the Lord is and what it's not. We can separate truth from error, righteousness from sin, we can cut a straight course through life of faithfulness and righteousness. And, and those of us that are right with God are called to preach the gospel. And this convicts people of sin. We're called to do that. That's discernment. Discerning right from wrong and communicating that. But there is a big difference from discerning right from wrong and communicating that. And, and warning those that you love, please follow the way of the Lord. Do as he tells you to do. Avoid these things that he has forbidden you to do and so on. That's, there's no, no pronouncement of judgment. It's just simply saying this is what the Bible teaches. And I'm trying my best to help you to understand that so that you can live the life that leads to heaven. That is righteousness. And it doesn't mean that we don't pronounce the judgments that the Lord has already pronounced. Because there's at least a half dozen of them in the New Testament in which the Lord has already said, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? So if I simply preach those passages and I say, Jesus has already told us how he's going to judge these kinds of individuals and these kinds of sinners. If I share that message, I haven't judged anything. I've just told you what the king has said. It's his judgment, not mine. But when we go beyond those things that the Lord has already made clear, He has forbidden us to pronounce judgment on our fellow man if He has not already done so. Absolutely forbidden us to. And so I want us to just look at this idea just a moment. I sent the slide in the wrong direction. But I want us to look at what our true north is with regard to judging one another. If the apostles are servants, what are we? That's my question. That's really the conclusion of this lesson tonight. If the apostles are servants, what are we? Well, we are in the faith because Jesus made them stewards of the mysteries of God. And faithfully, they revealed the truth that they had been given by miraculous revelation. And they revealed that truth under the watchful and perfect oversight of the Holy Spirit of God. So that even though Paul wrote with his vocabulary and John with his and all of that, nevertheless, at the end of the day, they both had written exactly what God wanted them to write for him to communicate 
to us. And by that word, we understand that what they are is what we are. We're servants, we're stewards, and yes, it is necessary that a steward be found faithful. Yes, on judgment day, it is necessary that you be found faithful if you would be rewarded. On judgment day, it is necessary that Jesus finds me faithful, that I must be faithful if I am to be rewarded. And so, I am to imitate my Lord Jesus, who at the age of 12, the Gospel of Luke tells us, was in the temple, and when his parents found him, he said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? You see, that's the mindset of a faithful steward. Jesus for his master, us for him, our master, our Lord Jesus for him. What must I be doing on a daily basis? i got to be about my master's business. I'm a steward. He trusts me. He has entrusted me with the precious gospel that saves the souls of my fellow man. That's my purpose in life is to be about that business as a steward. Yes, faithfulness is required. But listen, final two passages of the evening. Romans chapter 14, verse 4. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. You hear that? The gracious words limiting words words that put boundaries around us that we dare not disrespect finally james 4 verse 12 listen to what the brother of the lord jesus had to say the half brother of the lord jesus had to say there is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy who are you to judge another you see, the reason why division could come into the church in Corinth was because they were all judging each other. They weren't about their father's business. They were about their own. I want everyone to know that I know the word better than they do. And therefore, I'm going to put all of the rest of them in their place so that they will look up to me like they should. And that's a pronouncement of judgment upon these people. It, it is a belittling of the servants of the master that, that a servant has no right to do. A servant does not occupy the position of rank to decide what other servants are acceptable to the master. That's the point of this context. And so Paul is saying, quit ripping the church apart by forgetting who and what you are. And by forgetting who and what your fellow Christians are. Servants of Jesus, every one of us. And we don't know how to judge. Not rightly. I cannot disclose the intentions of your heart. Remember the warning in 1 Samuel 16, 7, or the word that God gave to Samuel the prophet. Uh, when, when, when Samuel was concerned that, that God wasn't choosing any of these full-grown, tall, and strong, and mighty sons of Jesse, but he wanted the youngest one that was out in the field tending the sheep. And God said, listen, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And it means, brothers and sisters, we need to humble ourselves because there may be some folks in our lives in the past that we've thought surely are not going to make it to heaven that we might see there with shining faces and glory because Jesus knew different. It's also possibly the case. There are people we've lived alongside that we thought for sure would be on a higher mansion on a higher hill than any of us would have, but that one day you'll look around and they won't be there at all.
because Jesus looks at stuff that we can't see. And so we limit ourselves to the judgments he has given. And we do not pronounce a single judgment that is not already pronounced in this book because servants, stewards of the master's goods, have neither the wisdom nor the rank nor the ability to make those decisions. And when we all sink into our proper places, humble servants of the master, about his business, wanting to love and help all of the others who are serving the same master as we, then we become builders of the church, not dividers. We become people who are being able, made able to do exactly what it is that the Lord has commissioned us to do. And that's the lesson tonight. This evening, if you are not a baptized believer and you know that you've got sins in your life, you're willing to make the good confession and give your life over to Jesus in repentance, we will gladly baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins. The water is ready. Nothing would make us happier than to do that this evening. This evening, if you are a baptized believer but need our prayers, the front pews are open. Please come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.